Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Solar Energy Systems, SCS, for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. They are a solar energy photovoltaic design bill firm headquartered in Brooklyn, New York, and serving the Northeast USA. And you'll hear more about them during the podcast. Thank you again to SCS for sponsoring. And if you don't get that right, you can have very large forecasting errors. We have some case studies where there's a still a 10 megawatt or five megawatt forecasting error. That's very expensive. That's going to really push back the return on investment time for your battery. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have on the podcast, Dr. Nick Inger. He's the CTO and founder of Solcast. Nick is an expert in the field of solar radiation and distributed solar PV modeling and has co-founded Solcast, a global solar data services company specializing in satellite-based measurement and forecasting technologies out of the sincere desire to enable others to build the solar power future. And he and his co-founder saw a tremendous opportunity to approach solar modeling and forecasting from their perspective as meteorologists working in the electricity sector. Solcast produces global data sets of real-time and forecasting cloud cover to support solar farm operators and utilities around the world in managing renewables intermissy. Their customers include Duke Energy, EVN, which is in Vietnam, which is an electricity distribution company, AMO which is also an Australian company. that And their company is actually based in Australia. Both They have offices in Canterbury and Sydney. Welcome, Nick, to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be speaking with the Solar Maverick podcast audience. They are exactly the people I talk about when I say building the solar-powered future. That's what they do every day. So those are my favorite people to talk to. Yeah, and I appreciate, Nick, you wanting to be on the podcast, reaching out to me, and then also being a listener of the podcast. And we haven't talked about solar radiance and weather, and obviously solar energy is an intermittent power source. And obviously you work with a lot of investors, asset owners, and energy companies. And it's really important how weather impacts the generation and solar radiance. So it's great to have you. It would be great if you could talk into more detail about Soulcast and what you do. It'd be my pleasure. And you've really hit on the head there with the impacts of weather on solar plant operations. And it expands to renewables as a whole. As we're moving into a future with more renewables in the grid, the weather really becomes our fuel source. And all stages of renewable project development, including solar farm development, big and small, rooftop solar included, kind of needs these services at all ends of the spectrum from the kind of climatological data that allows us to site solar farms and build financial models and get backing and investment into them through to the real-time data that allows us to manage the asset, catch any issues with its generation or its um, operations at an early stage and do yield assessment through to predictions of the amount of solar radiance or solar power that will come out of that asset over the near term, so the next few minutes, next few hours, next few days. And increasingly, as storage comes into the mix, co-location of those sites means that energy storage starts to use 
predictions of solar energy generation as well. And that future, that opportunity to service that whole data pipeline is what really attracted both myself and my co-founder James as meteorologists. We have long had a love for the clouds and for weather and also built careers on deeply understanding it. James in the commercial sector of meteorology services for 10 plus years, myself going down the academic route, doing a bachelor's and master's in meteorology and then a PhD in solar energy and uh, forecasting. So we had these two really nice matching streams of work that we'd done. I'd come up with some funding. He'd built an initial prototype right at the time we met. And boom, there you go. It was an opportunity to start a new company and approach the solar data services market in a very, let's call it novel and innovative way with the new technologies that have come around just in the last few years, like cloud computing, big databases, the ability to crunch phenomenal amounts of data, and not only those technical elements, but also some new hardware via these brand new geostationary weather satellites that sit in orbit above the earth around 30,000 kilometers in a single orbit where they stay and look at the same place of the earth, basically looking at a whole half of the earth. We stitch five of those together to make a global data set looking at clouds all around the world and updating that every time we get new imagery from them. Basically, we went from satellites that were giving us data on the order of every hour to every 30 minutes at fairly coarse resolution, maybe five by five kilometer pixels, over to a new generation of satellites that were giving us new data every five to 10 minutes at resolutions as low as 500 meters by 500 meters. So that's a big step change in the amount of data. It's also a big step change in what we can do with that data. And we came along in Australia when the first one of those satellites went live, the Himawari 8 satellite, which covers Australia and most of Asia. And so the timing there, the matchup of our skills and that need for solar data services growing exponentially, and I use that word very deliberately, around the world, created a lot of opportunity that we've seized with the company in our own sort of solar maverick kind of way. Yeah, definitely. That is really interesting. And you started the company in 2016, and I guess you're taking really terabytes worth of data, is that correct, to really come up with your predictions for the solar forecasting of the five minute ahead. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And that's a fundamentally big data problem. It's a bit of a buzzword, but when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, one of these brand new weather satellites can produce as much as six terabytes of raw imagery data that we collect each month. There's five of those around the world. So you can imagine how that's stacking up. And not only is there a data storage in terms of volume challenge, but there's also a computational challenge and a memory storage challenge to pull in that data, which a single image from a satellite is a few hundred megabytes. It's got that very high resolution information. How do we very quickly calculate how much solar radiation is making it through those clouds? There's a whole modeling step for that. And also make forecasts of where they're going to go next and then make that available very seamlessly and very quickly through an API Building that tech stack was one of the key challenges we needed to overcome in order to achieve two things, global scale, being able to have data all over the world and make it available through one API so you can get it wherever you need it, and two, updating that data rapidly. We call it rapid update. So making new forecasts every 5, 10, 15 minutes, depending on when the satellite updates, and then also creating every new forecast every time we get those satellite updates. And so those two aspects of what we offer were things we had to engage with on a very fundamental level in how we built the actual engine that drives and delivers this data 
downstream to the customers and users, it was not necessarily possible to take this volume of data at that speed, at this scale, just even maybe more than four or five years ago. It's the advent of cloud-based services, new databases, even the types of databases that, for example, Uber uses to track all their cars and drivers. These are things that have come along fairly recently that we have employed to engage with this big data problem in the solar space. So it's been a very timely engagement, but it's also been really challenging. And thankfully, we have a lot of talent in the software development space in our company that has brought a lot of brilliance and hard work into making that possible. Definitely. That's really interesting, Nick. And is that one of the primary reasons or primary ways that you differentiate from your competition is what you've been able to do, as you said, with this data and analyzing and processing it? And using software, obviously satellites as hardware, cloud computing, and all these other things, is that? That's fair to say. I think that there's a lot of really high quality work in this space from other companies. They're largely building what they have based on solid science, and they share the same mission we do. We want to all help the solar future happen more efficiently, more effectively. And hats off to those guys. We make no pot shots at them. But it is important to look at the tech stack to differentiate yourself. You can't achieve the scale and the frequency of updating without rebuilding the tech stacks that most of them operate. So there's this concept in entrepreneurship of last mover advantage. We moved later than many of these other competitors, and that allowed us to use new technology to achieve bigger scale, and faster updates. But that alone is not enough to differentiate yourself in competition in any business. You need more than just one or two bullet points. You need to have a purpose, a mission that drives you, in my view. And that's where this mission to deploy the data and tools for the solar-powered future really gets our whole team up and moving in the morning. It engages us with the challenges. And you also got to go out there and make sure that what you're giving the customers downstream is the best There's a great quote from one of my favorite entrepreneurs and big thinkers, Tom Bilyeu, when he founded Quest Nutrition, which was a protein bar company in a time a little over 10, 15 years ago, where the last thing stores needed was another protein bar on the shelf. But their kind of ethos and Tom's ethos was that there's always room for the best. And he takes that when he goes out and spreads his message. And I would encourage others who are going for their own entrepreneurship journey, even in a closely packed and competitive space, there's always room for those new ideas if you can make it the best available and you will fit into that market. So we focus on that level of ethos and that shows up in the validations of how good our data is, how good our forecasts are. I don't need to turn this into a Soulcast commercial, but I do think it's important to share some of that ethos with others who are out there in the solar industry trying to make it in a competitive environment. Yeah, definitely. That's actually a great analogy with uh, Tom Bilyeu. I'm a actually a big fan of his and what he's speaking about Quest Bar and basically how they came in an oversaturated market later, but was offering the best product. And that's how they were able to differentiate themselves. And that's interesting because that seems very similar to your story. And he's just amazing. I actually watched the impact there and I actually saw him speak in person in November, which was amazing. So that's interesting to get your perspective of that. You know, what I thought was really interesting too, you were telling me about how in Australia, they are requiring like five minute ahead solar forecasting and you call it, I guess, now cast. 
and how that really is helping solar companies boost their profits because then they're able to make trading decisions on selling their energy. You talked to like high level about that, but I think this is something really interesting. And I think over time, this is just going to be all over the world and not just Australia. And obviously there are other countries that do this as well. But I think this is, especially in the solar industry, where I'm seeing a lot more projects where people are taking merchant risks, basically trading merchant and not having like long-term contracted cash flows so that they could basically maximize their revenue. Yeah, the merchant transition in terms of the embracing that is a great analogy to what we're seeing in many energy markets around the world. And if I were to do what I like to do and make a forecast or prediction, I think it will be the case that many other regions adopt this type of approach. And we've seen it be the case in places like India, for example, where the concept in Australia is that we have a energy market that has a 30-minute settlement period and a five-minute dispatch target period. And what has occurred is that historically, solar farms and wind farms were obliged to use the internal forecasting model run by the Australian energy market operator. This wasn't the most accurate model. It ended up meaning that because of how the energy market structure is created, that when they have a misforecast, when they miss the forecast in terms of their actual production, the ancillary services market is used to correct for any frequency deviation. That kind of impact is spread across the market. And on a monthly timescale, there'll be a settlement for that and there'll be a factor in terms of your total percentage that you contributed to the need for those ancillary services with your forecast error that you pay. It's a cause or pays factor, they've titled it. Long story short, this forecasting error has been significant enough that solar farms and wind farms are paying hundreds of thousands to, in some cases, a million dollars or more a month for cause or pays factors from forecasting error. So what has happened is that we had our funding body for renewables, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, the Australian Energy Market Operator, and a number of the stakeholders in that market come together in a series of workshops and a bit slow, more slowly than the solar industry would have liked, got to a point where we had a change where that forecasting model was no longer an obligation. These Operators could choose which forecast they wanted to send. That creates opportunities for companies like ours. We're doing this now for 20 plus solar farms across Australia and growing very quickly. We're at the five minute ahead level. We're making an instantaneous power forecast that is superior to the one that was provided in house. And what that ends up meaning is that they can save anywhere from 15 to 20% or more on that cause or pace factor, which translates to tens of thousands of dollars a month, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it creates a really good win-win scenario for these solar farm and wind farm operators and the employment of our technology. And I think that this now casting horizon, so more than a few minutes ahead, less than several hours ahead, is a sweet spot for the type of technology we operate and is increasingly being needed as energy markets have more solar or wind come into them because as you enter more renewables in the mix, you mentioned this at the beginning, you have the problems of intermittency, specifically variability, which in this case is clouds coming and going. 
that means that the short-term supply and demand becomes more volatile. So you need to have these types of short-term predictions in order to ensure you settle supply and demand correctly. And of course, address things like ancillary services and frequency, which can also be disruptive. That's been a new opportunity in space in Australia. I think it's thematic for what we'll see in other places, including the United States. If I had to guess where stuff like this would show up first, it would be in the Southwest, it'd be in ERCOT, it'd be in California. A lot of these independent system operators already have some sort of five-minute-ahead activity happening that I think will mature into a space for forecasting to be possible. There's probably been an avenue to go discuss a specific technology if that's where you want to go, but I think that's a really good picture of what's happening, where we fit into that, and what it could mean for other solar farm owners and operators out there. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I agree with you in those areas that you mentioned the U.S. that would probably adopt and already have some sort of, I guess it's minutes ahead and day ahead, right, is similar to this concept, right, that they already have really in the U.S. But you're able to have more accurate projections, meaning clients make more money from it. That's the way I'm translating it. Is that correct? Yeah, the interesting thing about time of use tariffs is that they tend to be priced so that there's a peak shoulder and off peak period, and there's also usually a demand charge. So if you have solar on site and you can also manage your demand in some way, it becomes an application for solar forecasting technology because in particular, you can look to when that demand peak might arrive and In some cases, I've done a bit of consulting work in this area before I started SolarCast, that demand peak will be because you had a high demand period and your solar dropped off at the same time, meaning your demand charge is 20% higher than it was last month. And that means that there's applications, if there's that flexibility and demand to incorporate a solar forecast to be more efficient with that time of use tariff. So there is definite applications in that space. I think those are a little harder to realize. They take a bit more capability at the technological level. But as a trend going forward, I strongly believe that that will become more common. Interesting. And you mentioned ancillary services, frequency regulation. Can you talk about basically solar and storage? You know, obviously storage is there really to take help with the intermittency issues that intermittent power sources, obviously, like solar and wind have. Can you talk about how your solar data, SolCast, could actually work well in these situations? There's certainly application for solar forecasting, even when there's co-located energy storage. So the place that our minds like to jump is that if we have storage on site, we can manage the intermittency, no problem. This clouds come and go, we just ramp up or ramp down the battery to compensate. But what actually happens in practice is that energy storage pushes back the horizon for solar forecasting technology more toward what's going to happen in a few hours to what's going to happen overnight and into tomorrow. Because if you look at the financial aspects of a battery, it's a large upfront capital investment. It has marginally high operating costs, which are mostly taken care of if you're already locating it with power plant control or the solar plant, et cetera. But the big challenge there is that the storage capacity of that battery is always going to be limited. And that will vary depending on what market you're in. Um, You can hear lots of people cry about how they have to store 12 hours of energy to be a storage device in PJM's network, but that's another discussion. It's more common that you probably have two to four hours of storage on site. And so that can't handle long duration cloud intermittency, for example. It can only do that 
maybe two hour period or four hour period at full output. And more importantly, we would love to charge back up that battery with quote unquote free energy or the cheapest energy that we can get. And if you follow the logic here, what starts to happen is you want to know how to structure your battery operations today with some knowledge of what's going to happen tomorrow. Is tomorrow going to be abundantly sunny? Well, that's a great candidate. Today is a great candidate for discharging your battery. If it's going to be cloudy tomorrow, maybe the day after, you might be want to be a bit more conservative with the, how you are discharging your battery to offset intermittency or to potentially gain more revenue in the market. So it becomes one part of what we call in science and math a optimization problem, which I find totally fascinating. And so it becomes a input to that optimization problem along with the expected price of energy over time, the storage of that battery is peak output of the solar farm, and we can run some mathematical models to make that calculation. But a solar forecast is still important. A great illustration of a specific example, going back to that five-minute market we were talking about before, yeah. is at the Ganawari Energy Storage System, which is a site in Australia, lovely uh, Aboriginal name, Ganawara. <laughs> and they have such great names here. It's beautiful. And they, this is a 25... <laughs> What's that, mate? I was just saying, Nick, that you're from the US originally, if people could enter. I am. You don't have an Australian yeah, That's right. I can put it on. I'll try for you later. <laughs> uh, Ganawara. Bye. This site is a 50 megawatt solar farm, a 25 megawatt battery with two hours of storage. So 50 megawatt hour battery. And what can happen is if you have that five minute head forecast wrong, if that five minute head solar forecast is not right and you don't discharge your battery, I mean, you're going to discharge your battery based on that signal. You can still have a large forecast error. So you still need that short-term prediction of the solar farm power output to set the dispatch target and pair that with the battery and solar output together. And if you don't get that right, you can have very large forecasting errors. We have some case studies where there's a still a 10 megawatt or five megawatt forecasting error. That's very expensive. That's going to really push back the return on investment time for your battery. So this is still a technology that is very much needed, even with solar and storage put together, which is where the future is undoubtedly going. And is of course, very exciting. Yeah, definitely. And that was actually a great explanation, Nick, about how solar forecasts are still extremely important even with the solar coupled with storage becoming more important. So that's really helpful. How do the requirements for solar data change over the lifetime of the solar farm from planning through to operations? That would be helpful if you could talk about that as well. I really find this pipeline, this timeline of data that's required by a solar farm to be a great way to tell the story (laughs) of why solar data services are important altogether. And it is amazing where along this timeline of an asset from its inception through to its operation in a a high penetration market, how those, the dependency of that solar data is kind of there at every step of the way. And of course, that's the lens I see things through as a solar data services provider and a data junkie. It's a very real thing. And where we start is the development of a solar site. We need to work with climatological solar resource assessment data. And many folks have seen the beautiful maps that are out there of insulation. We actually produce these for 
the day prior, like live and in motion on our website. If people like that stuff, they can find it on our website, which we'll cover at the end. But these long-term assessment maps kind of give you a heat map showing you where the best yield of solar resource can be found in a given area that you might be developing. So we create those maps based off of 10 plus years of solar irradiance data history that needs to go through some models that look at the statistics of the data and draw out what we would consider a typical meteorological year, a TMY data set, which is something that we sell as a product. It's very well understood by the industry. And not just one typical meteorological year scenario, but a set of them that show maybe what a year that is a certain percentage higher amount of yield might look like, all the way up to be 90 or 95th percentile of the statistics to give you an idea of what your maximum revenue might be at that site. And this typical meteorological year data is put into formats that can be ingested into PV modeling software so that a site developer who's looking for opportunities can run a yield projection on a given site using that historical data. What's happening is that it's becoming more important to not just look at where the solar radiation site is really good, but also a multitude of other factors. You need to know if there is an endangered species where you want to develop your project or potentially a site of significant interest to a particular culture or a variety of other factors. And more increasingly, understanding the interface with the power network. You can look at many locations with wind and solar that were developed in Texas that are well below their revenue projections because they're under constraint factors because the market is congested. So this having good solar data is in the climatological data as a starting point, and it will carry you forward through to where you're trying to get financing for your site. But you also need to be able to start to look at what we call time series data, which is another data product that we provide. And it's also commonly known to the market where you can actually see how the data actually changed on a given day through several years, 10 years plus of history. So you can start to understand some scenarios of what a specific day might look like. And you might look for a very volatile day, a very high production day, a very suppressed day, and start to understand what the rest of the market around you might look like if you're getting smart in order to anticipate how you might actually operate that asset in the future. And of course, there's the process of due diligence where independent engineers come in and assess a site developer's proposal to see whether or not it should be financed. They want to look at the same data sets as well, maybe a bit more conservatively. And that's where the historical data largely fits. It's in that planning, financing, development of sites. And then once they start to come online and get built, we move through to, okay, what has happened in real time over the last seven days, last three months. And that means we want to be able to look at time series data from the past week, the past month, the past quarter, and see is that site we developed performing as anticipated? There will be handover from the EPCs to the operator. They got to do testing and show that it works the way that it's supposed to. It's generating electricity the way it should be. You need a baseline of solar radiance data generally to run that kind of power up and testing and handover procedure. And then as it hands, gets handed over to the asset manager, or the O&M provider, they need to be continually guaranteeing that that site is performing as it should. So we can rely on these satellite-based solar radiance estimates as a source of ground truth to understand, was it cloudy? If it was cloudy, was it 
a little bit cloudy? Was it a lot cloudy? Was it cloudy for many days in a row? Was the past month or the past quarter particularly cloudy or particularly sunny? Is that why my revenue is up or down? And it becomes part of that continual monitoring aspect of running a solar plant. The forecasting comes in where we discussed before in the energy storage and the self-forecasting aspects, but it also becomes important for the grid operators and utilities themselves. They need to have a big picture of what all the solar rooftop scale and utility scale is doing on an hour to hour, minute to minute, day by day basis so that they can balance supply and demand across the whole market. So that gives you a nice big picture of where these data services sit And I spent a bit of extra time on that solar farm development and asset management part because I think that's most likely where your listenership is most intrigued and interested. Yeah, definitely. They are. And that's great for you to explain and pretty concisely of how important it is through the basically development and then the owning and operating, how important the solar forecasting is into the equation because everything at the end of the day is about the production. And obviously, if there's an issue with production, it's always about trying to fix the production issue or better optimize because obviously we can't control the weather, but to understand the reasons for it and to make sure that it's not as big of an issue and to understand what's impacting it, if there's anything that could be adjusted, because it could be other stuff as well outside of weather. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Solar Energy Systems SES for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. The company is a solar energy photovoltaic design bill firm headquartered in Brooklyn, New York and serving the Northeast U.S. Founded in 1998, the company designs, builds and maintains solar photovoltaic PV systems with the public and private domain. I interviewed David Buckner, who's the founder and CEO of SES on episode 65 of the podcast. And it was one of the 10 most downloaded podcasts. So definitely check it out. The title is 20 Year Solar Veteran and Entrepreneur Provides Perspective on the Solar Market. To learn more about solar energy, check out their website, which is www.solarthenitsesystems.com. Email SES at info at solaresystems.com or call at 718-389-1545. We'll also have in the notes of the podcast information on solar energy systems. Thank you again for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship and you're a solar maverick, Nick. And it would be great to get your perspective of uh, coming from the academic world and then starting and co-founding. Soulcast with your business partner. And then I think you were telling me as well that you were actually working on both things, academics and business as well. And then also in the process of getting a grant. And it was really interesting to hear your story and how you were able to get to where you are now. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of work and being strategic and obviously a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get to where you are now. And it would be great to kind of hear your perspective of that. Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears is the essential ingredients of what building a business is made out of. And that's because it's hard work. 
you take on a lot of risk. You have to change your plans of the future that once felt so certain to ones that are uncertain to create opportunity. And those are some of the fundamentals of entrepreneurship. So I'm really glad you said that. For me, I had thought my career would forever be in academia. But what I found, even as early as working on my master's thesis, was that the concept of taking what I call science off the shelf and taking it out and working with the real world and making sure it has those tangible benefits of impact, which is something that I've intrinsically learned about myself that I care about and I have to have or I'm not motivated. I found that to not be the common thought pattern driving a lot of academia. And in particular, even the student research work you might do as a graduate student at a master's level or a PhD level. And so from the beginning of realizing that, I was already creating some of those barriers to overcome. It went so far for me and my master's to actually have to change my master's thesis topic and decouple from an advisor, which is a painful, difficult process. I spent an extra year in graduate school just to switch my master's thesis over to studying solar energy, where I saw a tremendous future and a real opportunity to apply skills to that real world problem that really drives me and gets me fired up. And I continued that same ambition with my PhD. And the main reason I came to Australia was because there was a forward looking, fastly, you know, very quickly developing resource of rooftop solar sites based on some state incentives and a what appeared then a fairly bright future for large scale solar took several years for that to eventuate. But to me, it was clear that this was a great opportunity to go to the beautiful country, have a fun adventure, but to also do my PhD in an environment where this solar challenge was really ramping up and starting to happen very quickly. So I got to focus my PhD research on the fundamental challenges behind estimating how much rooftop solar is being generated across a given region, providing a solution for the solar visibility challenge, which is fundamentally driven by a lack of actual measurement data from these rooftop solar systems. And this is very common across many different utility operations, even in the United States, where we don't actually have interval, meaning time-stamped measurement data of how rooftop solars are performing, not in real time, not historically, not looking forward. And this is a clear barrier to being able to accommodate more solar in the utility network. You need to have that visibility to execute on your basic chain of command and figure out where a problem's coming from, communicate that to your manager, get it over to the team who manages the poles and wires and go out there to fix it or make a change or crank a few taps on a transformer. Without that visibility, we can't initiate that process of solving problems. So I got to focus on that in my PhD. That meant there needed to be some incrementally important advances in the science, building better solar radiation models, testing models in Australia that had never been tested here, and building new methods of estimating how much solar is coming out of rooftop solar systems in a given area. In my PhD, I used the measurement data from rooftop solar sites, from people who are publicly sharing that data. And that was a great source of information, probably the best source of information for doing that type of work until these new high-resolution satellites came along, which have enabled a whole new avenue of applications for modeling rooftop solar systems. And so in my PhD, that was prior to that new satellite coming up, I built a model for the city of Canberra 
that is the capital. Uh, it's when one of our offices is based and that modeled 12 to 15,000 PV systems. It was early in my PhD or late because the, the uh, number of solar systems was growing very quickly. Sure. And that put me in a unique spot because I had built something with industry interest. I had got some data sets shared from the local utility to build that model. And because I had driven hard on that impact and actual real world value front, where I ended up at the end of my PhD was with a really good opportunity to talk to other utilities and say, hey, you know, collaborating with my local utility, I built this model. Would you be interested in trying it? And by the way, there's some funding coming out from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which will fund us working together. And that is where my professional academic career began, which was running a big project, which I grew to have 12 of the 14 utilities in Australia on board with. Through a lot of hard work, a lot of cold calling, a lot of rejections, and actually only getting six of them on board at the beginning of the project and then convincing the other ones to come along as the project grew and they saw that it was becoming the cool kid thing to do. And that kind of application of my thinking and what drove me, even though it was a bit unique and awkwardly fit in the academic space, kept creating new opportunity which flows on into that project that I got up with the funding and all the utilities, getting that up and going about the same time we formed Soulcast because I met my co-founder, James. I think the lesson to take away is by thinking about where the application is for what we're working on, while that's a stretch of the imagination in some cases for academics, because a lot of it, look, is fundamental research. It doesn't have to answer that question. That's important stuff to do. But bridging that gap, is a thing that is not well achieved, commonly achieved, and is therefore difficult to do. But it's an important mindset to have that it translates very well to entrepreneurship. Do we know what problem we're trying to solve? And we may have a really clear idea of what that problem is in our head, but it will change markedly once you go out there to the people who are having the problem and you initiate that relationship and start to understand it from their perspective. And that's what this project ended up doing. I started off with this supposition that everybody needed real-time simulations of rooftop solar systems and feeds from all you know tens of thousands of inverters from the inverter manufacturers like Fronius and SMA, whom we had on this project giving us data. But that didn't turn out to be the case. What ended up happening is by working with all these utilities is that they said, you know, this data is great. It's not certainly actionable for us, but here's some ideas that we have where we could apply and use this data. And we used the project to develop a bunch of use cases for where solar forecasting data might fit into the operation of low voltage networks. And by having that collaborative relationship and really valuing their input and their time and the questions they cared about, that's where we found where the value was. And that's why the project ended up being successful. And we've continued those relationships with a number of those utilities on into Soulcast. So that's a really valuable thing to think about. You can do it whether you're an academic, it'll be a bit more awkward, or an entrepreneur. How do we get those conversations going to really understand where that bit of early technology we've built, where does it actually create value that's good enough that you'll actually get a manager to say, yeah, we'll sign some dollars over to that and off you go to having a commercial relationship. Yeah, that's amazing, Nick. I mean, there's so many great points that you made. You know, obviously the last one is really a huge sort of thing is really you had data sets and information, right, that were valuable, but until you listened to the customer and had an idea of what exactly the information would be and in a collaborative approach, you provided them data that was useful that they paid for. That's a huge success and that's really great for our listeners to learn and hear about. 
It's interesting because you kind of talked about this. You've been successful in growing your company from like a startup phase through one that's a global presence. What advice do you have for other solar mavericks on succeeding with their business? I know you mentioned some of them just now in your example of your experience from going to school and then starting Soul Gas and doing your PhD. Do you have any other advice that you think would be helpful? Certainly happy to share some things that have worked for me and and for a number of others that I've seen through participating in communities of like-minded entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship is hard and it is hard because you're creating something new. And for somebody like myself, a child of the 90s, graduated high school in 2004, I become very accustomed to having it laid out for me what I needed to do next. And university courses and degrees only made that easier for me to extend that mindset from my schooling through my early adult life. There was always a clear objective. Do this assignment, get this grade, submit this thesis, uh, publish this paper. But as soon as you get into entrepreneurship, that roadmap is gone. You have to build that roadmap. And that means you need to have a vision for where you want to go that is big enough that it gets you excited and makes you want to work for it. And not only having that vision of where you want to go, that moonshot goal, as Peter Diamandis likes to call it, but also you need another thing he refers to, which is your massively transformative purpose. And that's a big word that can feel a bit woo-woo to some folks who are a bit more technical. But really what it boils down to is, do you know in yourself why you are motivated to go for that moonshot goal? Do you have that mission that comes up for you that actually evokes something emotional that makes you feel like I'm going to get up and do this even though it's hard. And for me in our team, it's that building the data and tools for the solar powered future. We want to get the tools and data that are needed by all the hardworking folks out there so they can forget about that challenge and move on to the next one of innumerable challenges they have, whether they're developing a site or operating it, the number of challenges they have and regulations they face is always growing. And it's frankly mind-boggling when you go to a conference and listen to all this stuff. So we want to go out there and help build the solar powered future by doing our part. And that motivates us. It gives us that massively transformative purpose. It gives our team that reason to be emotionally engaged and frankly, make it through when our operational system breaks down at midnight on the weekend. And one of the team members has to get up and go fix that. You have to have that glue that brings you together as a team. More technically, we need to be able to be quickly moving and we need to be able to gather data on our ideas so that we can build early prototypes and then improve them. And a really good illustration is this API toolkit that we've built. It's a web platform where you can come in and learn how to engage with the APIs that deliver our data. Because if we really want to achieve that mission of giving this data to everybody who needs it, we need to make it easy for them And we need to make it so it's tangible. They can learn about APIs. They can see some demo charts, set up their own sites without having to code it at the terminal or in a code script. And building that tool, we build a first version of it. And then we used a user tracking tool called Intercom, which allows us to communicate with users and understand where they're getting blocked, get feedback in real time, but also see what parts of that tool they're engaging with in which they're not. And by taking that data, we're actually able to analyze across a cohort of a few hundred users who's clicking on an individual button or who's looking at a page and comparing that against their expectations. We thought users would go get their 
X data through Y page, but really in reality, they're going to Z page to get that X data. <laughs> and we didn't expect that. We didn't design it to work that way. Being able to have data like that to see how your ideas are going out in practice against your user base and creating a channel that encourages them to give you feedback and to value that feedback is fundamentally important to entrepreneurship. If you're working in any software as a service or web-based platform. Because if you don't have that real-world data, you'll never figure out where those hidden assumptions that you have are. And I think that that's been one of the biggest learning curves I've gone on in terms of this entrepreneurial journey is seeing, like we talked about those utilities and that academic project before, where those ideas implemented get started from versus where they actually need to go and building out that roadmap with data because you don't know exactly what it should look like. You might have the moonshot big goal, you might have the purpose, but you got to fill it in with data and real user data and feedback in between. And, and don't fool yourself into thinking you're the exception to that rule because you understand your user so well. It, there will always be things you can do to improve massively by iterating on what I've described. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of great points to what you said. I appreciate that, Nick. And I was going to change gears a little bit. I thought it was pretty interesting. I know we spoke about it, about your blog. You have a blog called Biohacking with Longevity, and I was reading through it and I thought it was really interesting. Can you tell our listeners about it? I know you're very passionate about solar, but this definitely seems like another thing that you're very passionate about as well. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, on my personal website, nickengra.org, I run the Longevity blog. And when I was first looking at getting into solar, it was actually 2009, I was on a hike, I was in Yosemite, I was having one of those journal out, sitting on the cliff, looking over the valley, like, a, you know, prototypical moments of reflection, thinking about where I wanted to go and making this decision to move into solar from severe storms research. And that came out of a lot of my own research and understanding and projections on where the industry would go next and what I cared about and where my skills lined up. And I'm doing the same thing now in 2019, looking at the next decade. Where will I go next after we have built and accomplished our mission at Soulcast? And maybe it'll end up being in tandem and parallel a little bit in the future. Who knows? But I see the next trend that I'm personally very curious and passionate about being in the longevity technology space. And we have arriving now a multitude of technologies that will allow us to delay the onset of age-related diseases, extend our healthy lifespan, and possibly even our total lifespan. And while these things might sound a little bit scary or they might create uncertainty in our emotional response to them, it's really no different than how a new technology of any sort comes along, disrupts the current way of doing things, and then we eventually go on to accept it. We're in the very early curve of that longevity technology that transition occurring. It's very clear in the investment dollars growing year on year. It's very clear in the number of technologies that are being incorporated into companies who are starting up and getting funding and taking these to trials and selling products. This trend is very clear to me that there's going to be tremendous opportunity in this longevity technology space. And I have a impetus to care about this a lot because it's very clear to me that one of the things that's available to us now is the ability to detect disease at a very early stage. Far too often, we hear the news article of the stage four cancer diagnosis of a given 
popular figure, or maybe we see an obituary of a young person in a newspaper with a very emotional tribute to that person who died too young because they had stage four pancreatic cancer. We have the technologies available to us now to do an MRI of our entire body and detect many different types of cancer from their inception at very early stages. There was a wonderful announcement this week in the Wall Street Journal from a company, Grail, who's doing liquid biopsies, where they can actually look at the epigenome of uh, cells in your blood and detect over 50 different types of cancer from a blood sample. It's called a liquid biopsy. These things are incredible. They're here now. And I'm very passionate about making people aware of those so that fewer people die unnecessarily or too young because we have the technology to engage with these challenges. And that comes from a very personal place because my wife was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 26 or 27. I'm dropping it off the tip of my tongue here, but it's a very a bit of a dramatic story. You can read about it on my website. I had a little blog I ran through our journey engaging with that. But that very personal experience impacted upon me just how mortal we are, how unexpected this disease diagnosis can be, and that even as young people, we're not impervious to that, the onset of cancer. At the same time as my wife was battling cancer, I had two of my friends in their late 20s also get diagnosed with cancer, two of my best friends. So this motivated me to learn more and care more about myself. That journey naturally evolved into doing the cool things that I'm doing on the longevity blog, covering supplements, MRI-based technology like I described before, and some of the really cool things we're going to be able to start doing with testing, not our necessarily just our genome, but the epigenome that basically controls the expression of the genome. And that's very important in aging and disease regulation. And so all these topics are things that I get excited about and I'm covering on the blog. It's a hobby at this stage, but who knows where it'll go in the future. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate it. I've read through the longevity blog, most a lot of the posts, and it was really helpful, really insightful, and you're adding a lot of value to the people who read it. Do you have any recommendations of books on longevity that you would recommend? I love that question. I love books. I'm an avid reader. I think the most accessible book on the topic of longevity technologies is by Dr. David Sinclair. He's a a Harvard medical researcher, well-renowned in his field, totally credible, brilliant scientist. He's actually an Aussie close to my heart. He was one of the people who discovered, you'll remember, resveratrol and the red wine and drink red wine because it has resveratrol media spin that was a bit unfortunately placed on some of his earlier work. He wrote a book called Lifespan, and it discusses many of these technologies, the reasons why as we age, we become more prone to diseases like cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, which is one of those diseases is diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, which my own grandfather passed away from a number of years ago. And he does a great job laying that out. He's also full of some beautiful drawings he did himself. It's a wonderful book, great place to start. And I also would make the recommendation that people read this one from a brilliant British man named Dr. Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. Because if you read this book, you will understand how important sleep is to your body's recovery, particularly your brain. And there are several things that are very easy to do that you can be changing to allow yourself to sleep better. And that is absolutely one of the best things you can do for your longevity. 
from anything from just changing what exposure of lights you have in the evening to maybe what time you eat a meal before you go to bed. And that kind of pairing with some of the biometric data I get off my watch or my aura ring, which tracks my sleep, allows me to really fine tune the sleep in a nice way, which gives you a lot of longevity benefits. They both sound like amazing books and I definitely am going to check it out. And we'll have like as well, your blog, your longevity blog, a link to it and the two books that you suggested. This has been an amazing podcast interview, Nick. If our listeners want to learn more about Soulcast and get in contact with you, what's the best way? Our website's a great place to start. It's Soulcast, S-O-L-C-A-S-T, Com. And there's something there for everyone. If you're just a solar enthusiast, click on the free tools menu at the top. We give away free rooftop solar PV forecasts. It's the same technology we give to grid operators. You can get it for your rooftop solar system. Uh, there's a PV performance checker on there, so you can check your rooftop solar system performance. There's a archive of solar radiation maps that are in motion that you can look at around the world. And I love those because they get my weather nerd and solar nerd going at the same time. It's so cool. And if you're in the professional space, you can go down the avenues of looking at our live and forecasting data, our historical and TMY data, depending on what will help your solar project succeed. And we give away a lot of data for free. You create an account for free. You immediately can access forecasts for your site or download a sample of our historical data for a site that you care about. And we want to make as few barriers as possible to people coming in and finding the solar data they need, plugging that into their system, and moving on with the umpteen other challenges that they've got to sort out to keep their solar plant going, profitable, and think, importantly, about getting the next one going, because we need this solar thing to keep rolling forward. Yeah, definitely. That is really helpful. And we'll have, obviously, your website in the notes of the podcast And I really appreciate everything you're doing in the space, Nick. You're really innovating solar forecasting with Soulcast. And thank you for your time on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. You are a solar maverick, a true solar maverick. Thank you very much for that, Benoit. And we have to recognize what folks like yourself are also doing because without a mouthpiece to tell the story, we wouldn't get to all inspire one another. And I have listened to countless other stories on your podcast and others. I'm a podcast connoisseur, particularly in the longevity and biohacking space, as you can imagine. And this is just such a great platform to come be authentic and share experience human to human. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate it. And thanks again for being on. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 